0: Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan.
1: Given the strange and turbulent times that we are living through, Kurt and I decided to reach out to some of our favorite behavioral science researchers and practitioners to get their take on the novel
0: coronavirus pandemic that is shaking the world. These special edition episodes will explore a variety of different aspects of the crisis and our response to each of those aspects through a behavioral lens. We know that you may feel overwhelmed by the crisis already. It seems
1: every news story, every social media thread, every phone conversation that we have is focused on some aspect of the pandemic right now. While the news and updated information are essential, We're going to take a different tact. We want to try to understand the science behind our reactions and our behaviors and how science can help us cope and move beyond
0: the current crisis. In each episode, we talk with a different behavioral science expert and get their best thinking on an aspect of the crisis. So sit back, take a deep breath, and listen to our special series on behavioral science and the coronavirus pandemic.
1: Greg Davies, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Hi, how are you doing? We are doing well today.
2: How is uh, how are things going in London these days? Um, well, much much like the rest of the world, I, I think, sort of unusual, um, <laughs> um, slightly anxiety filled for most people. Um, it's a very strange time, and uh, you know, in London we have the advantage; we are still allowed out at the moment to go for walks and runs and. Cycles and things. So, that uh, outlet of the outside, particularly, it's a glorious spring here in London. So, that outlet, I think, is, is particularly valuable. But other than that, it's, it's, an, it's a weird time where everyone around the world is simultaneously focused on the same particularly odd situation
0: yeah it it isn't something that has not happened in my lifetime and i think in in most people's lifetimes at this point you know world war ii was probably the last time where something like this occurred and so that global aspect of this crisis is really an interesting aspect that you know we, we it's like this big natural experiment that we have, and to to see how the world responds, I think is really fascinating.
1: Yeah, no, no, I
0: agree. So, so
1: let's start a little bit by, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what it's like to be the head of behavioral science at Oxford Risk.
2: Uh, well, we're a we're a small company. We're a, we're a startup. We're a fintech. So, um, being the head of anything. Uh, invariably (laughs) means that you are, um, it's it's a slightly grandiose term and it means that you are wearing multiple hats. Um, But uh, effectively what we do is we build software, we design what we think of as uh, decision support tools. You might more, um, we sometimes use the phrase decision prosthetics. These are tools to help people make better decisions. And in building these tools, these are mostly fo- focused on financial decisions. So, investing behavior, savings behavior, debt management, financial well being. Uh, we are bringing in ideas uh, and insights from academic behavioral finance and behavioral economics and blending these together with more traditional quantitative finance, portfolio theory, financial mathematics, because those two in of you need to work together. You can't be completely behavioral and you can't be completely traditional. The real power, as with most of these things, comes when you, when you bring both of them to bear together. And what we're trying to do is to build tools that guide people through decisions that they otherwise find extremely complex, extremely daunting, um, and would tend to run away from or to make very knee-jerk and often costly and expensive mistakes in their decisions. Uh, If you can find a way of helping people to navigate that complexity by putting in front of them things that are tailored to their situation and to their personality uh, and bringing to bear a lot of behavioral science of how how to make things easier to navigate, you're doing two things. You're helping people make better decisions and you're also making them more emotionally comfortable with the decisions they make so they're more likely to stick with them.
0: So it sounds to that degree that that combination of bringing behavioral science along with all the other factors coming into play can really help people in in these, in these times of stress and, and various other pieces of that. Thinking about today, thinking about the COVID-19 crisis that we are in, what are you seeing uh, people doing and, and what are some aspects that you think people are are not doing well in this time uh, what can you say about that well
2: the problem with any such time is that uh, I think people's emotional time horizon shortens mm. and there is always in financial decision making a, a tension between the time horizon that it would be appropriate for me to view my life through, which is typically fairly long-term. I need to be thinking a long-term ahead. I need to be saving. I need to be investing. And my emotional time horizon, which is just always much shorter. And in times of stress, that just gets shorter and shorter. People start to focus on today. Um, you know, The tyranny of the present, all the time discounting stuff just becomes accentuated. So people tend to focus on shorter and shorter time slices and they also get bogged down in details. They focus more and more on, on details rather than looking at the big picture. And this leads to us um, making poorer decisions because if the decisions that are actually going to be good for me are require me to take a, a big picture, a long-term perspective, and if all the information I'm looking at is taking a detailed short-term perspective, I've driven a wedge through my emotional response to the situation and my objective, uh, what you might think, deliberative response to the situation. And so the the information that we look at, the way people approach decisions in these times, means there's just going to be a bigger gap than usual between the comfortable decision and the right decision. And as humans, we always deviate to the comfortable decision. (laughs) decision.
1: How do we marry
2: those two? You know, how do you you try to bring those two together then? The concept that that we use often is, there's this tension between the emotionally comfortable thing to do and the the financially right thing to do. Right. And traditional finance theory, uh, very often says, well, ignore your emotions, ignore your personality. That's just irrational. That's stupid. Turn it off. (laughs) And you tell people what the right thing to do is. And invariably the right thing to do is extremely emotionally uncomfortable in times of stress. And then you watch people fail expensively. Um, the the other sort of side of it is we go well I, my job is just to make you comfortable so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take a, a behavioral approach and I'm gonna make you comfortable with your decisions. What we really face here is a trade off. In the in the middle, there's a question of how much emotional discomfort is are you able to bear as a human, and how much are you paying for it. So I'll give mm-hmm. you an example. This, you know, markets have have been up and down. Well, mostly down, but you know, they've been all <laughs> yeah. over yeah. the place recently. Yeah. But you know, we all know this situation that many people sell at the bottom. Why? Because effectively, they run out of emotional liquidity. They, they run out of the you know, it's, life is, is stressed. I don't. If I, if it gets any worse, I'm going to have to sell the house, sell the car, sell the kids, whatever it may be. <laughs> and I don't know that I'm going to be able to su- survive that. So I sell my portfolio at the bottom of the market. Now, a classical finance take on that is it's irrational. It's stupid. We told you not to do it. Don't do it again. A behavioral perspective would say, actually, there really is nothing irrational about selling at the bottom because I get something very real and important in return. I get a sense of relief. I get rid of the fear and I get to move on with my life. So the question is not whether it's rational or irrational. The question is, how expensive is it? Mm. As much as selling at the bottom of the market is not irrational, it is phenomenally expensive because I've lost all the way on the way down. I then lock in those losses by selling and I cannot go from there back to the optimism that's required for buying. I have to first go through despondency, depression, apathy, indifference. Um, I might finally end up back at reluctance if I'm if I'm lucky. <laughs> and, and that costs a lot of money. So the question for us is, is not – how do I stop people from from doing things that assuage their need for emotional comfort? They should be doing things that assuage their need for emotional comfort. What I need to be doing is saying, how can I help them to, to get that what they need cheaper? And one of the ways that you can do it in these sorts of markets is, if part of the problem is I'm looking, I'm watching the financial press and the financial media too much, I'm seeing too much granular data, I'm seeing things going up and down on a day to day basis, and that is driving anxiety, it's driving this wedge between the right thing to do and the comfortable thing to do, then I should stop doing that. I should start filtering information. I should start, I should turn off the financial media, turn off the financial press. I should delay and slow down my decision-making. And these are things that we can do that will increase your emotional comfort without actually changing the reality of the situation. So you're filtering the information coming into you. You're using deliberate processes in order to slow down decision-making, a pause point, a cooling-off period. We all know that you should not send that email at the end of the day when you're worked up and you're <laughs> and, and, and right? You don't shoot from the hip. And the best thing to do in many decisions in life is to sleep on it and to wake yeah. up in the morning and you've got a fresh perspective and you don't have that emotional baggage bound up in the decision. And that doesn't have to happen overnight. But anytime you are in moments of stress and crisis tempted to make emotionally charged decisions, find a way of pausing, find a way of phoning a friend, finding a devil's advocate, doing a pre-mortem. All of these tools and techniques are ways of stretching the decision out so that the gap between the emotionally comfortable thing, the emotionally appealing thing at the moment, and the right thing has narrowed.
0: Yeah. You talk about this tyranny of the present and, and this idea that we tend to fall into this trap that we now and you're talking about sleeping on it taking a pause doing all these things before we got on air we started talking about the you know the best time to to plan for a crisis is actually well before the crisis happens uh, so how do you get people to to get past that tyranny of the present and and to get them to plan for these potential crises, we don't know what, you know, we we couldn't have anticipated a pandemic six months ago. Maybe we could have, you know, uh, Bill Gates maybe did, but for the vast majority of us, we're not doing that. But we know that there's going to be something coming up. So how do we get people into that mindset to be able to do the right things in advance so that when the crisis happens, they're better prepared?
2: So the one silver lining to this, I think, is that the best time to build your resilience for the next crisis. And I use the word resilience intentionally because the next crisis won't be this crisis. It will be different in all sorts Mm -hmm. of ways. But what will help for crises is is building general resilience such that whatever happens, you're in a better position to withstand it. And the best time to do that is just as this crisis is ending. Because Mm -hmm. if we don't do it now, when things turn up and the world starts to turn rosier again and we're allowed out, you know, to see our friends, and we're allowed down to the pub. We don't do it then. Uh, yeah. you know, and this has costs, of course. So we know that, for example, uh, sale of fire insurance goes up after after a fire. <laughs> you know, sale of flood insurance goes up after a flood. Now we can we can laugh at that and go, well, that's it's too late. The, the you know, stable door is closed. The horse is bolted. It's it's it. it there's nothing we can do about that. But if I do keep that insurance on until the next fire or the next flood, or indeed even better, if I don't buy fire insurance after the flood, but I buy general insurance after the flood, (laughs) and I leave it on, then I have in fact made my situation more resilient for the next one. And it hasn't helped me for this flood or this fire. And whatever I do now is, is in many cases, it's a bit late to build your emotional resilience for this crisis. But we need to use this window right now to think, what can we put in place that makes us as individuals, as families, as companies, as as societies more resilient to, to what will come next. Um, and I think that that gap that we have to do that is fairly short because it doesn't take long for us to start feeling comfortable again before mm. um, we no longer want to buy insurance.
1: Do you think there are some specific things or some general things that come to mind that you could share with our listeners that will help us build up that resilience now that we could do now, as you say, we've got this very narrow window.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think let me let me stick for a bit to investing um, because a lot of our time. Um, The first thing that we can do now is I don't know whether markets are gonna go up or down. I don't have the ability to predict them. It's out of my control. So the first thing is focus on what's in your control. And what is in most people's control to some degree is not the value of my investment portfolio, it's my spending. So I can use this as an opportunity to review what I spend, what I spend my money on over the course of the year, try to figure out which bits of that are more frivolous are less important to me, are less essential, and start to figure out which of those I really need. Now that both helps me be resilient to this crisis because it means I'm conserving my resources. But if I can start to use that as a systematic planning process to to change my behaviour and 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 realise that certain things that I was spending lots of money on aren't important to me as as important to me as I thought, that's building longer-term resilience.
1: Yeah, so you're talking about actually looking back over the whole year, or in, in not yeah. just in the past sixty days, but but actually take a look at what was I spending on before the crisis hit. Is that yeah. is that right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So so we want to get our minds out of this moment. I mean, this moment is what it is, and there's certain things that we need to be focused on and we need to we need to fix. But in terms of building longer-term resilience, I want to use this moment as a chance to review my longer-term plans to think about what is actually important to me and have any of those things changed now that I've discovered that I can't even go outside. Maybe some of the things that I thought were vitally important to me uh, in the world that was are, are in fact not so important to me. Um, what have I been spending money on and what am I likely to spend money on? So this is a chance to, to take stock. And the advantage of taking stock in that way is firstly, it gets your mind out of the here and now. It, it starts to break down that tyranny of the present. I, it, it, it's... it's deliberately putting me into a bigger picture mode. And secondly, it is, uh, if I'm thinking about this in terms of reviewing what's important to me and long-term goals, it's projecting my mind into the future. So it's naturally narrowing this this gap between the problem I'm trying to solve, how do I build resilience, and the problem I'm in, which is getting in the way of me resolving it, which is I can't see above the parapet of tomorrow.
0: So... You're talking about building um, uh, this resilience up and making, you know, taking actions today or immediately after this crisis is over in order to build that that resilience up. When we think about resilience outside of the financial pieces, I, I'm I'm assuming that this applies to that same same manner right i mean this isn't just about your financial well-being this can be about your emotional well-being it can be about how you operate your business and other facets of, of life in general and um i don't think there's a question there but i think it's just a general statement um and just any thoughts on that
2: well yes i mean in a crisis like this in fact in particularly in a crisis like this um you know, the financial crisis of 2000, 2008, 2009 was a financial crisis. And even there, that had huge knock on effects on many people's emotional health and mental health, et cetera, because financial stress leads to other forms of stress. And you know, these things bleed out. Now, in this crisis, it's not just a financial crisis. We also have the social stress and the emotional stress I and mean, the health stress, et cetera. Yeah. So even in crises that are not about health, Good health is something that makes you resilient. Uh, even in, society, in, in crises that are not about um, about uh, social connection, social connection provides you with resilience. So these are these are things that say if I want to build resilience, it's not about planning to second guess the universe and go I'm going to pick the next black swan. Or it's about building very very general resilience. And I think there's an implication here for businesses and corporates a lot particularly perhaps in in financial services, but I don't think exclusively, is there is a little bit of the um, fetishization, if you like, of optimizing. We will optimize this. And we will, as a business, try to make sure that we do the maximum amount of things with the minimum amount of resources. And if anyone's, if, if what someone is doing is being duplicated by anyone, anywhere else, then we will stop that from happening and we'll save money by firing one of those people and we will consolidate and we will make our organization as lean as possible. Optimizing. Now, the problem with that is any optimization automatically as a side effect makes you more fragile Mm. because at some point, one of those people you've just fired, um, you've know you got two people who have a a redundant position in an organization and you've gone costing me money. What I've done is I've gotten rid of that and I've made my life more efficient In good times and then suddenly that person gets ill in a crisis like that and now i have another problem just with that person's job i've got a problem because that person's output is an input into all sorts of other things so i think that this um cult of optimization is itself a big problem uh in in our society and, and in organizations because we deliberately sacrifice resilience for Um, for for efficiency. And and in good times, we don't feel that that's a cost. We don't feel that that's that that's going to cost us anything. If you like this version of its insurance, right? By having more by having redundancy, deliberate redundancy in my organization by having deliberate inefficiencies in my organization is a form of paying insurance against the stuff that I can't see coming around the corner.
0: Yeah. In, in in the United States, and I don't have the exact figures of this, I know the the number of hospital beds per capita is, is super low compared to the rest of the industrialized world. And part of that is because of exactly the things that you're talking about. That's a for-profit model, and they're optimizing, making sure that they have just enough beds to cover what would typically happen. And so in a crisis situation like this, you are stuck behind this curve of not having enough ventilators and enough beds and enough of the other aspe- aspects and, and components in order to to get through a crisis like this uh, in, in better shape. And, and now we're rushing to try to fix that. And to your point, those those aspects of inefficiency sometimes they cost us in good times. But you're you're really setting yourself up for for success or, or at least to be able to withstand. These these crises and these crises happen. I mean, the the thing is, is that we can be Pollyanna about this and go, well, it won't happen. We we just had ten years of of stock increases, you know, that have been the longest run whatever it has been. But we know at some point that is going to end, and there is going to be something that happens. And. Uh, I think too often we have it goes back to your time horizon that we talked about, and organizations can get stuck in that time horizon, um, short-term myopic looking as well.
2: Yeah, and in, in a financial context, you know, the the big free lunch of investing is something that many people see as costly, which is diversification. Uh, why would I? Why would I put money into stuff that I don't think is the best bet for me to put my money on? Right um, now, right. right now, right now, exactly. And you know, diversification is seen as a drag on performance and a drag on cost, because I've got these great models that are you know, hyper-optimized to pick the best investments. But they're only picking the best investments under the assumption that the basic parameters of the world and the universe, the political landscape, remain the same. And the minute that shifts, those are no longer my best optimal investments. <laughs> and therefore, diversification, again, is a form of insurance that, is, that builds resilience, and I think we can apply that to ourselves as well. You know, if you are the person who, through your life, has specialized and become the deep expert in the one thing, and that's all you ever do, there may come a time when nobody wants that thing anymore. <laughs> and, and so, diversification, learning multiple skills, um, being deliberately multidisciplinary in your approach—these are the things that make us resilient uh, in, in in the course of our careers and our lives building general strength and health and emotional well-being is is something that takes work and and it's costly uh, away from you know other things we might want to focus on just for the the momentary pleasure and joy of it but these are things that will stand us in good stead at some point
1: well, and isn't there something anthropological about this when it comes to adding value to the tribe, right? We, we, we want to be able to, to be valuable to the tribe so that in tough times, the tribe might accept us or take care of us as individuals. And a multi- multidisciplinary approach is actually a good hedge against the tribe taking care of us um, as opposed to excelling in, in just one single area.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. Um, of course, as our societies have gotten bigger, and, you know, there is a need for specialization. We can't all be simultaneously a neurosurgeon and a rocket scientist. <laughs> um, right. So people do have to specialize in, in something. And we need those specialists. We need those experts.
1: Well, you can be uh, uh, the head of behavioral science for a behavioral finance firm and be a board chair for Sound and Music, a national charity for, <laughs> for <laughs> new music. So there is some multidisciplinary aspects to your life.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I would actually argue that the, the whole thing that got me into behavioral science in the first place was the fact that it wasn't a single science. It was, from the outset, something that was multidisciplinary. Uh, and sometimes that Adds confusion, you know, because you've got psychologists dabbling in in behavioral science. You've got economists who call themselves behavioral economists, which you know the the psychologists then get annoyed by because they say they've rebranded what we were doing anyway. And um, you know, and there's space for philosophers. There's space for mathematicians. There's space there's space for everyone in behavioral science for for computer scientists for for you know data data scientists. And I love that about it because it is—it is you have to be somewhat multidisciplinary and somewhat curious, in order to bring all these things together in, in one place. Um, the, the music, I have to say, it has been difficult to to synthesize into the day job. So you know, I've I've always been a, I, I've always been a passionate but uh, strictly amateur uh, musician, and I've always been very deeply interested in new music in particular. So the Sound of Music, Sound of Music for, for, for your um, listeners is is the UK's national charity for uh, for new music and for, for composition, for supporting composers and new audiences and education around creativity and composition through music in schools. So it's something that I've often found myself deeply passionate about and um, it's been quite, The the, the day job is sort of useful at a board level, but um, the music hasn't been all that useful in the In the behavioral science,
0: (laughs) I think Tim may have a a point of discussion there. I think he thinks that the music actually does lend itself into just some general general understanding and various different pieces. At least we've had long conversations about why are we talking music on a behavioral science podcast, but he he thinks there's some correlations there. So,
2: just, just even there, there is one thing that occurs very immediately. So music these days the the very strict genre genre bands that have existed in the past have broken down considerably. Mm. and i think an awful lot of the most interesting stuff happening in music today are classical musicians who are collaborating with jazz musicians and you know playing with electronics and it's it's the interplay between these things and there again it's it's about resilience and it's about a multidisciplinary approach because if you I mean, if you are the world's best violinist, that'll be great. You will do very well. But what happens if something happens to your fingers, and that's all you've ever done? Right. So that resilience uh, is is important. And in something with as 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 strong a tail as music, is it's very difficult to devote your entire life to becoming the world's best violinist. And this mm-hmm. work, actually you end up only being the world's 143rd best violinist. And <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, it's, that's, it's a very that's, a, that's
1: a tough play. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, what about, uh, you know, you talk about new music. Can you t- uh, tell our listeners how you define new music? Because I think that, uh, that's a, a term that could be easily brushed over and is important in in our discussion
2: yeah and you would be um yeah well perhaps you wouldn't be surprised but the amount of time that we spent <laughs> discussing that in, <laughs> in organization. but we are deliberately um genre free as it were so this could be traditional notated classical music it could be jazz it could be free improvisation it could even be sound art so visual artists playing with um things that involve sound in sculptures etc so we have a very deliberately broad view of what new music is um but what is at the heart of it must be it is it is about the creative process uh and so as much as i i love traditional composers and uh, and, and performing that this is not about uh about performing things and interpreting others works. It is about the process of creativity and, and generation of, of new things. Uh, and of course, as an organization, we are a charity. So we are particularly, um, you know, supporting uh, uh, composers who are working on often more experimental um, and less commercial uh, type of things. So people who are, who are focused very much on the stuff that isn't mainstream Uh, pop or or, or mainstream music.
0: Yeah. It's interesting you talk about this cross-pollination between, you know, the different genres and various different pieces. And I I will go to a a local artist, Dessa, who I'm a big fan of, who is a rap, hip-hop, Kind of person, and and she has done a couple different things now with the Minnesota Orchestra, where they're they're co- collaborating on these new pieces of of music, or taking her music and bringing the orchestral component into it. And it, it's really fascinating because it it brings a different. It, it it switches the sound to for both of them. And and I think that really adds to this piece. And going back to your general resiliency aspect and this idea of also of of you know behavioral science being this multidisciplinary aspect, it, Tim and I have done some work with um with uh Carnegie Mellon. And one of the interesting pieces about the decision sciences department there is the, the diversity in their group. I mean, they have classical economists. They have, you know, your psychologists. They have a rocket scientist on on as part <laughs> yeah. of, of their, you know, faculty. They bring in a multidisciplinary aspect. And I don't see that necessarily in other aspects of academia. We have another friend of ours that we talk about who actually left academia because he was in the business school and it was literally, like, Do not talk with those people over in the humanities because you are part of the business school. So I think there is something to be said to bringing that multidisciplinary approach. Even as you think about organizations in in building resilience, uh, you know, we've talked about this idea, you know, companies, you know, focusing on one specific thing. but. Uh, maybe there's an aspect that they need to broaden their horizons as well in thinking about how they they go to market and what they're providing. Um, and again, I, I am just pontificating today without <laughs> asking any damn questions, and I well, apologize. I, <laughs> I'm just going off on a rail.
2: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll try and I'll try and answer a question you didn't ask. And uh, <laughs> well, what 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 kicked off in my mind uh, at that point is if you are trying to help people to be making more objectively good decisions, and let's park for the the moment, what we mean by objectively good, because that's a big topic in itself. But Mm -hmm. imagine we have a a set where we know we know what our objective is. And we know that that's what we want to achieve. And we want the decision to be objectively better in the sense that there is less emotional knee jerk response in it, I'm, I'm assimilating the information, I'm making a clear eyed, thoughtful decision. Now, one of the best ways of doing that across all forms is is planning and building a series of processes and structures so that what you're effectively doing is you're taking decisions away from your own future self when that self is emotionally charged and worked up and you give them to yourself now when i've got the time to sit down and think calmly and and coolly about it so one way of thinking about that is you you write for yourself a constitution this Mm -hmm. This is a set of rules that governs how I want to behave in a bunch of future scenarios because I'm able now to think that these are, are a good set of rules. Now, the, that, that's great. That that's, A constitution can stop us from the knee-jerk emotional response. That It cannot stop there. And that's one of, one of the, the places where I think that often we go, behavioral science, we need to put in place processes and rules and heuristics, and that that's jobs done. The problem is it isn't because the world changes and Mm. we all know the old, uh, you know, the German military statement, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. (laughs) And one of the problems here is the more thought through your plan, the more detailed your constitution, your set of rules, the sooner it and reality are going to start to diverge. So we need not only to have a set of rules, we also need a process for how we evolve those rules over time and how we adapt. Because that is the point where most of us get most stress. I could have gone into this crisis with a very clear set of rules of how I'm going to live my life. And I think that I have er removed the emotional stuff from that that problem because I've built the set of rules that govern how I am going to behave in this world. And then the world changes and my rules are no longer there as a crutch. And I've got to figure, do I double down and stick with my rules or do I drop them all? And which ones do I drop? So that process of being able to evolve your rules as the world changes, I think, is, is a difficult one. And we tend to lurch for one side to the other. Either I go, I'm not going to bother to prepare for the future. I'm just going to do what feels emotionally right at the time. Or I'm going to recognize my need to contain my emotional self. And I'm going to build for myself this, this, this strong set of rules. And I'm going to stick to them regardless of, of what. And we see that in corporate strategy a lot we see you know the ceo will go out and they will spend six months or nine months planning creating this big corporate plan and a plan is deemed a good plan insofar as it's got more lines on the excel spreadsheet and more (laughs) stakeholder checkpoints and more kpis there's a great plan because look at the detail in this plan and the more detailed a plan the sooner that plan and reality are going to diverge and that's when people get stressed because all this work and love they've put into their plan. People get emotionally attached to the plan. And then they become reluctant to relinquish the plan when the plan and, and, and the world don't fit anymore. So they double down on it and they double down on it right up to the point where it goes horribly wrong. Um, the board fires the CEO, and then you get the situation where the the board will go or the company goes, well, we'd never do that today. That was so, <laughs> you know, they were an idiot. We, they, you know, we're an- <laughs> And then you go through the whole process again. And so it's not as simple as going, I need to contain my emotions and build a set of rules. I need to do that. But I also have to find a way of thoughtfully challenging and testing those rules uh, every week, every month, every every year, and seeing which ones are still fit for purpose and which are not. And that bit of constitution redrafting is a bit that I think many of us don't take the time to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah I think there's an endowment there's an endowment effect that is happening with our own ideas not just the things we own but the ideas that we hold and, and bring forth and you're talking about you know these leaders who are so invested in this project this plan this strategy that it puts these blinders on and and this emotional uh Element where if if this fails, this is a reflection on me and everything else, as opposed to being adaptive in in these times. And I think some of what you talked about. So um, you didn't ask a question on this, but I'll go back to my pontificating self. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> um, the the aspect of of that resiliency of of when those things do change, having a broader perspective. So in other words, not being so deep in one area provides you with a better vision and and the context in which to put those decisions in so that hey i can the world has changed and now i'm not only looking at it through a financial perspective but i'm also looking at it through a behavioral science lens and i'm also looking at it through maybe even some insights from music that i can bring in to say oh this is how it's changing and this is how it's impacting not only me but others around me so i can have a a more holistic perspective on this. And I'll shut up now. <laughs> it's just occurred to me that there's a whole link here that had not occurred to me at all
2: before, which is the nature of improvisation as being exactly this, exactly this decision making. So, you know, I don't just, I need to practice. I need to prepare. I need to 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 construct the rifts I'm going to go back to. I need to learn my scales, but I need to be able to adapt to the environment. And what you're talking about is some form of uh, resilient improvisation in our lives and in our decision making. So you're right. There is always a parallel.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and uh, uh, of course, the musical stuff I think is is a great great way of thinking about it. Uh, Kuhn Smets talked about uh, this this uh, improvisational sym- symphony, like this idea of, of trying to find a world, trying to figure out I- I- in our the world that we live in where we have all this all these players doing every everything that they need to do. That is somewhat scripted, but also improvisational uh, yeah. and has the ability to adapt. But, and I also just want to bring up something that we talked about uh, with uh, Alessandro Del Ponte, who is an economist who's working with political issues. And he talked about the, the philosophical differences be, between sort of a deontological approach of saying the rules that we're going to live by need to be absolute and and these are the rules that we're going to live by versus a, a more contextualization, a contextualized philosophy that says we're going to have to adapt those rules to now. And it sounds like what you're saying, Greg, is is that we really need to focus on the contextual al- elements of what's going on because the world continues to change. Is that is, is that fair?
2: I think it is, although I think there's one thing that can help us to marry the two a little bit, which is the nature of the rules themselves. So Mm -hmm. if the rules we are following are very specific and very detailed, then you're kind of going, I'm 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 giving these things uh, a value that's gonna make make it very difficult for me to change them when the time comes. If what we think about the rules that we put in place is much more about broad principles, And those principles themselves are are slightly less context dependent or slightly less specific then we can start to have a little bit of both at the same time so i think the context is important and one of the things that is vitally important is and and this is why i sort of push back because it's not all context but one thing you should never ever ever do is change your rules to push through a single decision at the point Mm. right the rules that you play by have to change more slowly than the decisions that you're faced with. So this is a bit like a political constitution. It's there to ensure that we as a collective do not do things in times of stress that we believe to be against our deeply held principles. Now we can change our constitution if the world changes but we should never change our constitution to push through a decision. We should only change our constitution after sufficient due process, supermajority vote in two houses of parliament, et cetera. <laughs> uh, the constitution is tangible, but the speed at which it changes should never allow you to transgress in the moment.
1: Well, this connects back to deliberateness and pausing and being thoughtful and, and, and not being reactive uh, and, and not just, you know, jumping in and just saying, OK, now I have to change the rules, right? I mean, this is actually being really thoughtful about it
0: yeah I was it, it brings up uh Ray Dalio's principles the book I don't know if you had a chance to read that but you know the the way that he operated and again you can agree or disagree with the principles that that they've identified in that but it is a set of pretty broad principles of how he was running his company and 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 looking at life and so I think there's a aspect of that I like about the 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 general principles of that are more of a, of a moral fiber almost for you. It's it's this idea of who we are either as an organization or as an individual. And, and we don't want to break that, but we need to have some flexibility in how that gets um, placed out into the world and how we have to respond to things. So it's not down to thou shall never chew gum, right? It's uh, something much broader about i don't know that was a bad example that i'm now trying to draw a larger parallel to but you get the you get the drift right there is this aspect of things that are general that will build us and hold us true to who we are and what we want to be and and again going to your time horizon this idea of this long-term piece because if we start, making those smaller changes, as you said, breaking our constitution for a one-time thing, then it leads to long-term consequences.
2: Yeah. You know, it it goes back to the resilience story. Very precise and specific rules to govern very small corners of my behavior in a specific circumstance are fragile because there will always be a circumstance where it's appropriate for me to break those. Whereas more... Broader transferable principles are less fragile; they're more resilient, and they can they can they can guide me. And those are the ones that should change slowest in your life. You know, yeah you, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be changing any of them on a whim. But those broad principles should be sort of written in stone and, um, yeah, you know, embalmed in a in something <laughs> that you <have> to play <laughs> in order to change it.
1: Yeah. Uh, can we uh, ask you a little question about? About music and work, I'm just curious about if you listen to music while you work, and uh, if you do,
2: time. what kind of music do you listen to? <laughs> I listen to music all the time. Um, I'm—I uh, I don't know if you've come across a misophonia. It's a—it's a slightly um, odd thing. It's—it's it's, its a sort of diagnosed condition of people who find it very difficult to listen to certain sounds, like. People who would get intensely aggravated by someone eating an apple near them or yeah. rustling about Chris. So so I have a I have a mild form of that. And it it, it, it came when I was studying. I could never ever work in a library. Mm. So it was quiet because I was waiting for someone to turn the page, you know, two seats <sighs> down. It would, it would aggravate wow. me. So I have for my whole life I work with music on all the time. And it's it's really odd that, you know, having something loud on is actually more peaceful than having Quiet around me. Um, uh, I listen to absolutely everything. In fact, my 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 sort of favorite thing, I have to say, is uh, I use Spotify in an odd way. So I basically like every track that I I listen to. It could be classical, it could be rock, it could be thrash metal, it could be jazz, it could be whatever. And I've now got thousands of songs on there that I've I've liked, and I just put them on shuffle. So I can have Gregorian chant followed by you know, thrash metal followed by dubstep, And it's I, it's, it's, I don't know anyone else who, who quite does that. Most people seem to like a thread running through the music they're to. I quite like the randomness of it.
0: You are you are throwing Spotify's algorithm for a loop with with doing <laughs> that. That it doesn't know how to process. You know your thing. It's it's probably going to blow up at some point. But I I actually am, am more in line with you. I will I will have a a very wide mix of genres in in whatever I'm listening to. And for me that that is actually really helpful because it it changes up the the mood the tone my energy levels and and it allows me to do that when i do use music um both in work and just in in just general listening so
1: and i'm i'm on the other end of the scale i i have preferred especially if i'm writing i want absolute quiet i just want total silence and uh yeah, uh, it's it's been hard for me and when I listen to music it becomes very intentional and it I do seek out threads. I want to listen to Debussy. I I want to listen to I want to listen to Claire de You know, I get very specific about that and and then that kind of leads into a thread rather than just, ah, I don't care, bring up anything. That's really interesting Greg that you have that ability and comfort with uh going from death metal to Debussy.
2: <laughs> I, I do worry though that uh that intentionality is is also important and i sometimes worry that if you're if you sort of let everything flow through sometimes you're not you're not listening enough mm. and then mm. if uh, and uh, you know the most unusual things can become background <laughs> background wallpaper so every now and then i do have to sort of bring myself out and go i'm going to listen to x whatever it may be it was a Bach's and John Passion this weekend, because it's just a wonderful piece of music. And, and actually, a, a friend of mine who's an opera singer has just in the UK put on this thing where he has got had, he's put on the Holtz and Bach Passion with every single member of the orchestra, choir, chorus and soloists all recording their own piece in isolation. Oh, wow oh, God. Quite something. Oh,
0: I, I can't imagine the just the technical issues yeah. in the project like that. Oh, man well we talk about resilience and and one of the things that i find really um helpful in this time or or inspiring in this time is the resilience that we see in the creativity of people that are stuck inside their house with a changed world around them and yet they are still being creative they're finding ways of connecting with people that we have not done before, and our general adaptability uh, of being a, of just being human, and and being able to survive and maybe even thrive in these times has been really inspiring from my perspective. That we don't just hunker down and and form a cocoon. Or many of us, I'm, I'm sure there are people who who do that too, but we don't just you know fold up and and start crying in a in a corner that we actually are searching and and being thoughtful and creative and trying new things and exploring and the resilience and adapt you know our adaption is really amazing um and it, it gives me hope um you know there's not a lot in this time of crisis that gives me a lot of hope but that's one of the things that gives me hope
2: well i don't know if, if you Jones have found this but i found a lot of people um looking either deliberately or just finding that that's what they do naturally are looking for silver linings you know i i'm stuck here but i'm spending more time with my kids or but i'm finding time to read something or listen to something or do something new and i I think uh, you know clearly for people who are ill and for people who are are struggling financially and for a lot of musicians whose you know jobs teaching jobs and performance uh, income has has dwindled to, to near nothing that is very very stressful but i do think that a lot of people are looking for silver linings to say well maybe maybe we're more adaptable or more resilient than we thought we were
1: yeah yeah brilliant greg thank you so very much for taking time to talk with us
2: today on behavioral grooves absolute pleasure It was a fascinating conversation even some questions <laughs> <laughs>
0: Welcome to the special edition grooving session where Tim and I groove on some of the ideas and concepts that were inspired by our conversation with Greg. All right, Tim, what inspired you? Well, first of all,
1: it's always great to talk to somebody who is both so musical and so deep into behavioral science. Uh, That just was really cool. You like that. I I do. I I know you like that. Well, he's. He's my tribe, you know, so so I, I, I just, I just really dig that, but okay. Let's, let's start at the beginning. The emotional time horizon shortens under stress and we need to pause. Yeah. Right. yeah, I, I mean, so you know, we have all this decision-making stress, right? And that we're willing to, you know, we're going to focus on the tyranny of the present because that's all we have. It's like right now, right now, I have to, I have to just deal with right now and not think about the long term. And there are all kinds of problems that come from that.
0: And- yeah, and 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 we know from neuroscience that. When we're under stress or in a fearful situation, our prefrontal cortex thinking gets inhibited. So, yes, yes. we tend to rely more on what we've always done in the past or on an emotional gut system one reaction to those types of situations. So, it doesn't allow us to actually even think that long-term future piece, or to put two separate concepts together. We tend to focus in on the details. We, We don't focus on the broader picture. It also takes this element of bringing in the need to do something now to relieve the anxiety that we have. And it's really hard to pause, take a moment, Look at this from a rational system two thinking way of yes. analyzing it, right? And going, okay, let's let's be thoughtful on this response, and let's think about this as to what's going to happen. No, we go. Oh my god, I, we got to make a decision. The markets are crashing. It's all going to go to hell. Oh shit, what are we going to do? Let's. Uh, I got to sell. Sell now. No, no, wait, no, no, it's all right. So we don't get more contemplative thinking
1: no and engaging that deliberate thinking that system two thinking can be extremely difficult and yet that yields us better results it yields us better results a a ton right yeah yeah makes our lives really really
0: better both emotionally and financially in this case well and i loved his his conversation talk uh when greg brought up this we do the emotionally easy thing to do versus the financially sound piece, right? Yeah, that was a great example. And he talked about how much emotional discomfort can you bear and how much do you have to pay for it? And I like the idea where he talked about, you know, selling at the bottom of the market, you know, all the economists say, that's irrational, it's stupid, it's dumb. All the financial planners do the same thing. But he said, from a from a psychology perspective, from a behavioral perspective, you're satisfying some angst that you have. And so, f- that part, you're actually satisfying some pieces of you it. You really are. Yeah. It's just costly. It's very costly. So, you're paying a premium to feel comfort. and yeah, paying a premium in the market. You're, you're paying in, with, with money to, in to just feel market. better. And that I thought was really interesting because it, it, it changes how we, we look at this and go, yeah, there's a value in me not, not waking up in the middle of the night worrying about things. There's a value of not having cold sweats because I'm worried the market's going to fall further and I'm going to not only just not be able to buy the new boat that I wanted, but I'm going to actually lose the house that I live in. Um, uh, those yeah. irrational thoughts that go through our head, but they're, they're, they have a real consequence. And yeah, we could think through and go, yeah, the market is going to come up, but there's a price that we pay for that in the immediate uh, piece, which gets back to the tyranny of the present. And so you, you pay for that comfort in the long run for having that comfort in the, in the short term. So- which is totally a
1: first world problem. You know, this is, this is really among a, a relatively small percentage of the overall population that that is worrying about investments and things like this. But the fact is, it's real for a lot of workaday folks who uh, have 401ks and who have uh, who have been getting up and going to blue collar jobs for their whole life. And, you know, their savings right now is being depleted
0: if they have anything in the market. But I I think this goes beyond financial decisions. This idea that we we make that emotionally easy decision versus the emotionally hard decision. It comes (laughs) into play. We do it all the time. It's status quo bias. It's another way of basically saying status quo bias to a certain degree, right? It's emotionally easier for me to sit on the couch and watch Netflix than it is to get up and go and exercise, even though in my long-term benefit, there's a cost to me sitting on that couch. I am yeah. not as healthy as I should be or could be or want to be, Yeah. but it's easier emotionally at the moment to sit on the couch and not have to get up and go and work out, or to you, you can apply that to a, a variety of things, right? It, we want to write a book. It's easier for me to sit down and and, you know, not write it, (laughs) not write it. I can go through Twitter and get all mad about what's going on on Twitter things. But I should I could be, you know, doing some hard work
1: and writing the book. Um, It's night guy versus morning guy. It's it's the we're we're not very good at being rational and really good at at rationalizing. (laughs) (laughs)
0: we are rationalizing humans yes that is exactly it yeah yeah Yeah. what Uh,
1: else what else struck you kurt
0: well a lot of the conversation revolved around building emotional resilience and i loved i love that term and actually we've had a few other conversations with some other guests some that haven't been published yet uh that talk about similar types of things, and it's this idea that we need to build up this general resilience, which is about strength and knowledge and this ability, as we said, to withhold or to stop that tyranny of the present and to pause and to Mm -hmm. think about things uh, and not to be emotionally, what did he say, emotional knee-jerk reactions, decisions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we want to make better decisions and less emotional knee-jerk reactions. So
1: we know that we can make better decisions in a cold state versus a hot state, right? We know we've there's a lot of science on this uh, in everything from sexual activities to financial decisions, uh, all kinds of you know great research on this.
0: Dan Ariely writes about it wonderfully in Predictably Irrational, and it has to deal with sex and weird stuff. But but it is vivid. It is a very vivid story in Predictably Irrational. So I recommend people if you (laughs) haven't read it, please go out and read it. And if you have read it, go back and, and read it again. Cause it's, it's interesting. It, it's great.
1: But ironically, we don't practice being in a cool state or a cold state to make decisions. We tend to not think about if we're going to make a big decision that we really might do better. If we were in a cooler state, we tend to oh. just make the decision in the moment that we're in it. And oftentimes those are hot states and we right. rarely say, "Wait a minute! Wait, wait, wait! This is a really important decision. I need to pull back. I need to practice some calm. I need to get into a different space, or I just, you know, there's the don't send that email tonight. Send it in the morning." Yeah. How often are people actually doing that? I, yeah. I I know I'm, <laughs> I'm
0: not doing it as much as I could. I suppose. You're right, you know? and I think there's there's value in. Practicing that, right? We we had some other conversations um, with some other people who talk about, you know, high stakes performance athletes and yes. you know, top per- musicians who are out there performing and they're in this emotional hot state with a lot on the line and there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of fear and this idea of being able to get yourself into less of that hot state and more into a cold contemplative state in those situations and take that fear and that stress out of the situation talked about how you can practice that and it's about practicing those those techniques to calm yourself down your mind down and i think that's one of these things but Uh, Greg brought in this idea of writing yourself a constitution, basically building in Odysseus contracts, right? These things that limit our options, knowing that we're going to potentially be in a hot state at some point, limiting the options that we then have, or somehow calming us down, slowing us down, getting us back into those cold states um, by allowing that. So your, your idea of sending out that email, there are programs that you can do or setting up uh, things in your email outlook that when you hit send, it'll actually not send it for a minute or two minutes or different things. Because you know that immediately after you hit that send button, you go, oh, shit, what did I just do? But there are there are things that you can go out and, and have it. So you hit the send and then you have that feeling and you go, oh, crap, wait, I need to stop that. And you can because the actual email system hasn't sent out that email. It <laughs> right. waits a minute or two minutes. Yeah. Um and so there are, there are different things that you can do um from that perspective in order to get yourself into those more contemplative yeah. moments and not be reactionary.
1: He he also talked uh, about something that's really important to me when I think about goal setting and having plans. He said, you know, it, it's not so much about having a super detailed plan, but um it, it's about having enough flexibility. And we've talked about this with other guests as well. And it fits really nicely into the work that I've done on uh, research and goals and how we need enough specificity to be able to sort of visualize or or kind of lock into what what that story is uh, and where we want to go. But we also need to be gentle with ourselves and be willing to, to be flexible with that. So, right. Well, you know, if if I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, that's great. If that if that's my goal, and I've got a specific time frame, and and maybe a whole plan to train toward that, but I also need to be willing to say I might not get there in the time frame. I might have mm-hmm. overestimated, uh, you know, how right? How, how right, how well I will be prepared at a particular time. I might need to
0: push the trip back. There's not a bias about thinking that we're going to accomplish things sooner than we typically do <laughs> or faster, <laughs> is there? There's nothing like that. You, you bring up a really good point, right? This idea of, and we talked about principles, and and what are those principles that we have that shouldn't be as fluid, but the specific things and and he brought up the idea that the German motto or whatever that you know no plant survives first contact with the enemy yeah. and that we have to be uh flexible right because the world changes the environment that we are in changes and particularly as you think about all right so prepping preparing for uh you know, a response to another the next crisis. We don't know what that next crisis is. And we can have a set of rules of how we respond. But we also have to be flexible to say the world may be a whole different place. And that crisis is going to be vastly different than whatever crisis, potentially could be vastly different than whatever crisis we've ever experienced before. So those rules may not apply. They may actually be counter uh Intuitive, not not counterintuitive, you know, they, they may be a negative response as opposed to a positive response. So, yeah, yeah. I thought that was really an it's important cool. piece of this, um, but really making sure. And he talked about improvisa- improvisation, uh, and I thought that was a way of thinking about this, right? If you're in an improv group you don't know what's coming next but you've practiced and you've practiced enough to build up this repertoire of being able to go with the flow the yes and and do it fluidly and do it appropriately uh, but not knowing exactly how you have an overall goal but you don't know exactly how that goal is going to be achieved. Which
1: goes back to conversations we had with John Sweeney or Kuhn Smets. Uh, Those those guys, you know, really emphasize the power of improvisation and how life really is about improvisation. We're kind of always making shit up, you know, every single moment of Um, every single day. At least me, I am. I know. but, But for the most part, it's much easier to make something up if we feel like it's contiguous with the status quo right and just to kind of keep it going with the simplest and easiest way that to 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 improv to improvise is just to do what we did before
0: yeah it, we we fall back to the habits and routines that we do and and uh, the vast majority of our behavior during a day is routines right it, yeah. it's habitual yeah. Yeah. and and the the way that we go through life is to just do what we've always done um and sometimes when those those heuristics that we have come up to a situation that is new it's hard for us to break out of that which again gets into some of the issues we had and then when you're when you're not familiar with the situation that's stressful for us there's a fear inducing peace because now you're not sure how you're behavior is going to what the result of that behavior is going to be right and it could be negative and we don't like living in that uncertainty of of the potential of having a bad result yep. you know i always i go back and you know the amount of worry that i have like for instance if if we're doing a project and something is going wrong or you know some mishap happened and i have to talk to a client about it the the worry that I have is 10 times more uh, before actually having that conversation than the actual result of actually doing it it's i'm yeah. worrying about all of the potential things that could go wrong how is the client going to respond all of these different factors and that's a that's a mechanism for us it's a it's a defense mechanism because yes. now we're running through we're ruminating how we handle this and and it allows us to practice in our mind the different ways of doing that that's what worry is causing us to do it's causing us to go through the potential Options and potential ramifications of that, but it causes us pain and and worry. Once I have that conversation, ninety nine point nine percent of the times, right, it's like either it's not a big deal or we go work through whatever it is, and now yeah. I can actually start doing stuff, and you're you're working on it. Um, but I think that gets into this to a certain degree as well, as is, is we tend to because so much of. These crises are about the unknown. That's the painful part of this. Yeah. And
1: wouldn't it be easier to have the em- or w- in the short term? Wouldn't we like to have the emotionally satisfying and rewarding experience of not having the conversation? Yeah. Right. But the long term outcome of that is very negative. It's yeah. going to have bad consequences if we don't have that conversation. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. Great. which right. We're pretty great. Yeah, I also wanted to talk about this cult of optimization, and we've okay. had other conversations about this in this series, actually, about this. And I think it's a really interesting yeah. piece because of the way that our, our world works. And so the, you know, this concept that we are so lean, so optimized as organizations that are out there trying to get every last penny out of the inputs that we have – that when a crisis or a pandemic comes up, we don't have those redundancies. We don't have the the wherewithal to have things in storage. We have just-in-time manufacturing. We Our supply chains are so dependent upon every other piece of that supply chain that if there's one hiccup in it, uh, you know, everything breaks down. In normal times, that's Perfectly fine because you don't have those hiccups. In times like this, it's really horrific. Yeah, and how do we overcome that? Right? Yeah, I had, a, I had a conversation with an
1: economist yesterday, and we were talking about this optimization issue and the lack of redundancy is being problematic. And the economist said. We can't go back because the laws of economics are just what they are. We are going to need uh, we need to return to higher levels of profitability, and the only way that we can do that is with lower costs because consumers are going to be unwilling to spend more. and And I understand the argument; I'm certainly familiar with it. And there's a part of me that feels like I don't want to just accept it as is. Yeah i, I want to, I want to try to. Think about this from the perspective of could we change the social norms around what is acceptable for profitability and what is acceptable for redundancy within an organization and the way products get created and just-in-time manufacturing and all these kinds of things that we've, we've had these conversations with other guests. And it's we've, we've gotten ourselves into a world that is extremely risk intolerant. Yeah. Small changes, you know, cause, you know, the the Dow Jones Industrial to go up or down a thousand points in a a day because a little bit of bad news about this, which might not even be real bad news. It might be the possibility of bad news. Um, And and we've got problems uh, that that we're so risk intolerant right
0: now. Yeah, I I fear that to your point that once this crisis is done and everybody's talking about some of this aspect and we're going to go back to that normal. But I wonder if if uh, just thought experiment, right? You think about hospitals and this for-profit hospitals and how they've optimized the number of ICU beds they have because in any normal situation, which again happens 99% of the time, if not more you don't need those extra beds. But when a situation like this happens, you having those extra beds is really vital. And uh, so do you prepare for that? Because if you build those extra ICU beds or buy those extra ventilators or have those extra mass on hand, there's a cost to that. And you're being judged in the marketplace by your profitability and the marketplace, to your point, is going to you know, hurt you because you're not as profitable as that hospital just down the road that's not doing that. And even beyond that, internally, within the hospital, people are getting bonused and incented on meeting certain financial numbers. And the more that you can increase that profit the more that you are going to get paid probably. And mm-hmm. so you have an incentive, you have uh, that extrinsic motivation to optimize and to, to create the lean and not, not have that extra ICU bed right. in place for these moments. And that's a hospital sitting situation. So is there a policy perspective on this that gets into place because we know that, hey, lives are at risk here. And that may be taking place in some of these types of industries that are vital, and maybe it doesn't happen in auto manufacturing, maybe it doesn't happen in computer software, maybe optimization is good uh, and and takes place in those, but maybe certain industries we don't, maybe certain industries we we change our, our viewpoint i don't know i don't know the answer i i'm hopeful again because i think there are some elements that we should have redundancy that we should maybe build a little bit of slack into our systems um both from a manufacturing kind of thing but also from uh Productivity, you know, we're trying to eke out every last ounce of productivity from the people. Yeah. And that has a cost to it as well in the long run that, again, we're paying for through increased anxiety and stress and a variety of other negative psychological factors that maybe we don't have to.
1: That's really well said, Kurt. And it makes me think of in the academic world, universities have endowments and an endowment is, is a buffer. It's a savings plan basically for the university. And in the seventies and eighties, it became popular to, to try to measure the endowment in terms of how well would it cover you for a year? Do you have enough endowment to cover your operating expenses for one complete school year? Would it be possible to pay uh, the faculty the staff uh, run all the administration and uh, the buildings and facilities uh, for a year, and by good fortune, a lot of universities went well beyond that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know I, I've heard you know Harvard could could go for something like twenty years without having to charge tuition because their endowment is so large. But I wonder why we haven't been willing to adopt that in the corporate world to say, what would it be like if we had this huge downturn? And we couldn't pay our salaries at the normal rate for a month or two months.
0: We talked with Barry Ritholtz about it. And he he talked about the tweet that he did that, you know, everybody talks about, wow, people don't have $400 in savings to cover, you know, an expense. And he said, but why don't organizations have $400 million in savings to run through a downturn like this? And so banks have to have a... You know, an aspect of liquidity uh, and and savings that are set aside that they can't loan out, right? And yeah. there's there's it's elements regulated yeah. regulated from that perspective. Other organizations don't. And you look at the airlines, and you look at how they got a bailout. You know, back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and if you look at the amount of the, when they took their profits, what did they do? They did stock buybacks. They didn't put it in savings. They didn't right. reinvest in making their operations more e- efficient and various different pieces so that they could weather a storm like this. And maybe that needs to happen as well. Yeah, maybe agreed companies need to think about this this isn't about necessary optimization i guess it is because it's optimization of your of your cash flow and how are you doing it and optimization of your stock price because if you do stock buyback you get a higher stock price but in in reality organizations need to be looking out and saying hey how how safe am i what is my insurance policy for when these crises happen how can i hedge Mm-hmm. And what is it that I need to do in order to do that? And that might cost me a little bit up front, like an insurance policy does. But that insurance policy pays out really well in the long term because we know that these crises are going to happen.
1: Well, and from, just from a financial perspective, Barry Ritholtz could go back every decade for the last 60, 70 years and say, <laughs> here's a financial crisis. 10 years before that, here's a financial crisis. 10 years before that, here's another financial crisis. So it's not like this is the 100 year flood. Yeah. Uh, this this is a financial crisis that unfortunately isn't too unlike uh, financial crises that we've had in the last 20 years. So yeah.
0: <laughs> I'd like to, to switch gears. And, I and- know you are. I know you want to talk about, um, you know, NASCAR racing right now, don't you? Uh,
1: NASCAR, if NASCAR racing is spelled M-U-S-I-C, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, music. I wanted to start with, I'm so impressed that you came up with Desa so quickly in talking about the way music and musicians that blend different genres really have a make a powerful statement way to go man
0: Well, Dessa is one of my favorites so I of know I'm gonna go with her you know. know and she does she brings in you know she started hip hop she was a rapper and then she's expanded that into more of a uh you know hip not hip hop but um pop music um yeah. Yeah. and now she's mixing it with the orchestra. And so there's this wonderful collaboration and mix of bringing all of these disparate genres together, Mm -hmm. and it creates a really interesting sound that I love.
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty terrific that they're not the first to do this. Right that we have that it's just considered innovative in in the in our musical world. And I go back to, and it probably could have happened before Chopin. In fact, I'm sure it happened before Chopin, but I think Chopin was really great at bringing uh, his Polish heritage of the mazurkas and the the that sort of the folk dances into. The melodies that he wrote in classical music, and mm-hmm. so he was integrating these folk melodies uh, into into very serious music. And then, of course, we have this big uh, folk rock thing that happened in the late '60s. That people like James Taylor and uh, Stephen Stills and and Roger McGuinn and and Paul Simon were folk musicians, and then they and Bob Dylan, and then they put an electric guitar on it, and all of a
0: sudden, now we've got folk rock music. And well, and so they invented. And think about how much crap that Dylan caught for that, right? Oh, I mean, there was a huge where he brought the electric guitar out at whatever festival that was. Yeah, the the Newport Folk Festival, him, right? Yeah, he was booed right off the stage. Absolutely. I mean, you understand. you have to wonder again, going back to status quo, that taking that leap to to blend and to bring and mix and be creative can be scary and people aren't always going to accept it and that's a piece of creativity where you have to have a little bit of resilience coming back to resilience and and know that you know not this isn't going to be universally loved taylor swift
1: took a lot of grief in recent years to move to try to move from country to pop and of course she she did it fantastically well Mm -hmm. but and, and is a brilliant songwriter and performer Uh, and yet she did she took a lot of status quo bias grief
0: for it yeah music and and behavioral science who would have ever (laughs) thunk that you could combine the two Right there. Look at that genre mix. How about that? Man, that is just crazy. How creative (laughs) would that that podcast be if somebody took behavioral science and and cross-pollinated it with music? Man, why Mm -hmm. doesn't somebody do that?
1: Yeah, send me a note if somebody does that because I'd love Uh to see what that is.
0: All right. Uh, well, we have gone on long enough uh, with us just talking, but hopefully people, you found this interesting. Uh, if you did, please let us know. If if we talked too much and went on too long, let us know about that too. We love hearing from you. Reach out to Tim uh, or myself on Twitter or LinkedIn or go out to Behavior Group's website uh, and leave us a note there. If you did enjoy this, please share it with a friend. Um, we would greatly appreciate that. And again, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the special episode of behavior grooves. We hope that you found it interesting and insightful. If you liked it, please let others know. We think that the topic is important, and maybe we can help in educating people about how behavioral science can help us all out in this current craziness that we are going through. Also, please let us know if you have any
1: thoughts or ideas that would be helpful or that we could share. You can reach us through the Connect tab on the Behavioral Grooves website at www.behavioralgrooves.com or through Twitter. I am at T. Houlihan, and Kurt is at What Motivates.
0: We really do love hearing from you.
1: And this topic is one that spurs lots of emotions and
0: thought. As part of our mission, we want to expand and inform the community of people who think about positively applying behavioral science to life. One way that happens is through leaving reviews. If you think this podcast is beneficial and should grow, we would really appreciate to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast server you use. It only takes a few minutes and goes a long way to boost us in the algorithms that are used to generate search results. Also, please check out the show notes. We are linking to a number of resources articles, podcasts, newsletters that we vetted to bring good facts and ideas around COVID-19 and the coronavirus, its impact and ways that we can help slow down the spread. There is a lot of information that's being pushed out to everyone each day, and we are weeding through it to find good stuff so that you don't have to. We truly appreciate you listening. Now go out and wash your hands.